What's going on, people? I would like to welcome all of you to another Q11 edition of the Talk to Q Radio Show. My name is Quincy, and this is my show. And with the Q11s, what I like to do is interview people to expose my audience to new things. I talk to authors, entrepreneurs, entertainers, counselors, other podcasters, and sometimes just your everyday person who just has something to say about a particular topic. So it's an opportunity for you to get to know these people up and close and learn their story. What sparked a passion to choose a certain career or what inspired them to write that book? Or why is this person so opinionated about a particular topic? So just sit back and enjoy the show and please be encouraged to share. A lot of my guests, much like myself, kind of do their thing by word of mouth. So the more that you share, like or comment on a social media post, then the more you can help me grow the show. And it also gives more support to the people that I bring on the show who are looking to get their services, products, and talents out to the masses. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. My guest is a registered nurse and author. Her latest book, Raising the Bottom, Making Mindful Choices in a Drinking Culture, talks about how social drinking may have an impact on your health, family, relationships, and career. From the Buckeye State of Ohio, please welcome Mrs. Lisa Boucher, to this Q on one edition of the Talk to Q radio show. Lisa, how are you? I'm well, Quincy. How are you? Thanks for having me. I am doing great. Thank you for joining. I appreciate you taking uh, time out of your schedule to participate in this. And remember, everyone, be sure to like, share, and subscribe to help support me. And also be sure to click the link in the show notes to see Lisa's social media information and other relevant links. All right. First of all, let's get some background on the job that has given you insight into this particular topic that we're discussing today. You are a registered nurse. How long have you been in that profession? Well, since 94. So what, 20 some years. Um, Yeah, like 25 years or more. I don't know. I can't do math like on the fly here, but since 94. So I have primarily worked mostly in a level one trauma center, emergency room, and then in psych wards. And there were a few places in between, but those have been the two bulk of my career. And I really feel like I was directed there for a reason because about a few years into working in that ER, I started to notice that pretty much, and this is just my undocumented survey, just of watching, but I went, you know, 80% of what's rolling through the doors is drug and alcohol related. And it's just really that simple from the car accidents, the traumas, the um, fights, shootings, stabbings, um, bad livers, bad hearts, bad kidneys. Often alcohol was always in the background. And I thought, you know, this is killing people. It's a slow form of suicide and our culture pushes it ubiquitously. It is constant nonstop. And a lot of people that do struggle, they struggle even harder by trying. I mean, society doesn't embrace people who say, you know, I'm going to not drink. They just don't embrace it. You get questions, you get made fun of. And unless you're really strong, a lot of people just don't want to fight that battle and they just kind of give in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, because when, whenever I, I, I'm watching, you know, television, alcohol is always celebrated. Every beer commercial looks fun. In the movies, the people who are 
drinking wine or maybe have a three fingered scotch. They always look cool. And do you think that's part of the problem or maybe the main problem is that it's embedded in us that there's nothing wrong with drinking? I think, Quincy, what has happened is the alcohol industry, let's let's go back and like look at the, the back door of it. They spend billions on advertising. So they have literally got everybody believing you can't have fun or enjoy your life if you don't drink. And so it starts from a very young age. Think about it. Um, little children, you know, they're told, oh, don't drink until you're older. And as the mom standing there or dad with a wine glass in their hand. So these kids are getting mixed messages from day one. And they are looking at their parents who are often using alcohol as a means of coping. People don't feel okay in their own skin. And so they need something to take that edge off that initial, like, oh, now I feel like I belong. You know, we talk about pe people that have to pregame, go to the, you have to have a few drinks before you go to the party. So you feel okay walking in the room. Well, we need to be looking at why is, why do people not feel okay in their own skin? And I can talk about myself. I mean, because that is exactly why I started drinking at a very young age, coming from a very dysfunctional home with an alcoholic mother. My father, I call him a rageaholic. So I think when I found that initial escape, the first beer I had, I was 12 years old. Yeah. You get that feeling, you get some relief to the craziness. And, you know, I didn't start drinking alcoholically from the get go. And I had a horse and that kept me, I think, on a straight and narrow for a number of years. Um, I think I would have really gone into addiction at a very young age. So but I do think our culture does not, um, you know, we never peel back the curtain. And what is all that alcohol doing to the families, to the marriages, to the relationships? It is so destructive. And we only look, and, and the movies, like you were saying, they only portray it as like this glamorous, you got to have it to have fun. But they're not looking at what really happens to a lot of people behind the scene. Definitely, definitely. And so, do you think that a person can drink? every day and still be considered a responsible drinker? Yes, I do. I mean, here, here's how you can tell. If you can stop at two drinks, if you drink every day, but you can stop at one or two drinks, you don't have a problem. I mean, you are more than likely, I shouldn't say, there's, there's always those outliers, but for the most part, that is not a problem. I mean, many people do that, I'm sure, and they are not alcoholics. And so what is the difference? How do you know? If you are someone who is going to have a substance abuse disorder or slide into alcoholism, you're not going to stay at a couple drinks every day. You're going to notice a progression. And that is one of the earliest signs that you can look for in your own self, that am I progressing? And here's what it looks like for many people. They start drinking on weekends, maybe when they're younger. And then that starts Thursday through Sunday. Now they're drinking Wednesday through Sunday. Pretty soon they're drinking you know, seven days a week, five days a week, and still running around going, I'm a social drinker. 
actually that's probably not social drinking because when you notice a progression like in myself I did that that's how mine looked and that's what really scared me because my mother like I said she was an alcoholic back in the day when there weren't a lot of women alcoholics and they really didn't know much about it. And so she had a very sad route because they just threw medicine at her and she just kept getting worse and worse. Um, finally, when she did find recovery, because finally there was a doctor who was like, you're, a, you're an alcoholic and she went to rehab and my mother never looked back. Um, so I think you have to you know, when I saw her get well, and I'm, I'm thinking, because that's what happened to her. It was that slow progression of, you know, she wasn't a big drinker, but she always had kind of a pill problem. She, the volume back in the day there in the 60s. So, you know, you can be a person that has a couple drinks a day. And as long as you're not progressing, you're probably fine. But if you do have that predisposition toward alcoholism, you're going to not be able to stay there. And it's going to become either you're going to try very hard to manage that. When you have to control your drinking, it's already out of control. All right. But, you know, some people have, you know, friends who do it, their family do it, um, their significant, significant other may do it. How do you change something that's part of your environment? Like for you, um, or, or I just I guess in general, for women in general, if everyone is, seems to be doing it, how do you take yourself out of that element to make sure that you're okay and that you're not someone that's spiraling out of control when it comes to alcoholism? That's a really good question. So in my situation, I live with a drinker and I've been sober, God willing, it'll be 33 years this month on the 22nd. Um, you know, I quit drinking four years into our marriage and my husband was very upset about that because he lost his best drinking buddy. He did not st stop drinking. I could get up from my desk right now and go downstairs and there's alcohol in my house. So, you know, we, I had to find, I go, I work a 12 step program and that has worked for me. And I, you know, it is a spiritual solution. Because to sit there and just white knuckle it, that is no way to live. And, you know, I wanted to be able to enjoy life. And we went to Italy and I was a little concerned about that. You know, all the wine. Can mm -hmm. I go to Italy and stay sober? Yes, absolutely you can. So it comes down to we have to have a spiritual solution that we are strong enough. Now, do I go sit at a bar like I used to? Because I love the bars. No, I don't. I mean, I'll go to the bar if somebody's having a party and I want to see that person, or, you know, if you're at a restaurant and they send you to the bar for a few minutes before, that's one thing. But am I going to go camp out at the bars like I used to when I was drinking? Absolutely not. So there are things that I do to protect myself. I will go to parties where I really want to see the people. I go a little late. I run to the bar, I get myself a club soda with lime. So nobody, they all assume it's something alcoholic. And when people start slurring their words, I'm out of there. So, you know, there are ways that we can still live in this boozy culture and we don't have to partake. And I know like when my sons were little, I have twin boys and we would go to family invited to a family barbecue. And it was absolutely ridiculous how the parents were getting sloshed while these kids are running all over. I can't tell you how many times I gathered up 
seven or eight of the little ones, put them in the back of my car and we went and got pizza because I was just done with it, you know? So, and I didn't care if people liked me. So I think that's why people struggle. They're so worried about everybody liking them or what are people going to say? I was just more interested in saving my life, saving my health and being a good role model to my kids, you know? And I want to throw this out here. Why is it that we live in a culture where we're grown adults, educated adults, adults that are being successful in many, many ways, care more about what their damn friends think than what their kids think of them? Like, this is messed up. You know, I, I'm just, it's messed up. And I decided I cared more what my sons thought about me than what any of those friends. And I did lose a lot of friends. And sometimes we need to lose friends. You know, those weren't people that really had my best interest. They were drinking buddies. They were all about Lisa as long as we're all at the bar and we're all. And the minute you're not about that anymore, none of those people called me. And that's okay. I mean, that's okay. But I had, uh, you know, you go through a little period of lonely, I call it. When you get sober. And you find out who your true friends are. And there were a lot of women friends that I still enjoy, but we would go to lunch instead of do evening drinky things. Um, You know, I didn't get invited on the girl trips and all that. And that's okay because I can't handle alcohol like maybe they can. Or I wanted more for my life than just going to work, coming home, drinking, hanging out, doing it all over again. I mean, I... I wouldn't be writing books and doing some of the things that I'm doing now, helping people if I made that so important, what my friends thought. I agree. Peer pressure is definitely a part of it. And I, I guess I was fortunate because like, I didn't have my first drink until I was probably 18 or 19, which is really late yeah. for a lot of people. Um, it was just never anything that interests me. And, and so I, I never had that issue. But like your book focuses on women. Aside from peer pressure, what do you think are some of the driving factors for women who drink excessively? Well, let me just say there are a couple men in my book and men really have liked the book, I think, because it's very non-threatening for them. I've had many men, like one was a merchant marine and he found the book in a little bookstore in Seattle and he went out to sea and he's sober and he found me on Twitter and we're still friends today. So uh, please, if you're a male, don't steer away from the book because there's a lot of the disease shows up in everybody pretty much the same, you know, and it's the feelings, Quincy, like I think people turn to alcohol because we be, we've become a very shallow society and social media has been just toxic for many because, you know, looking at people's lives, these little snapshots and you do a lot of comparing and all of this stuff. And it really makes people unhappy thinking their life isn't as good. And so I say, you know, get off of social media And start planning your spiritual garden. I think we have a hole in the soul culture where we, you know, it is a spiritual solution. We need more God and and our society. I mean, that is the answer. And people have many different beliefs, but that spiritual connection is crucial. And I think people are feel empty inside and they're trying to fill themselves up with this chemical solution and it just doesn't work. 
it doesn't work. And I think that's what people are chasing instead of working on, you know, people have a lot of wounds, childhood trauma, um, any kind of trauma can fuel addiction. So you've got to heal these wounds, these internal wounds, instead of just, you know, it takes a lot of courage to get sober because you got to start looking at yourself. You've got to start looking at the pain that you've been running from um, and then deal with it, you know? And so that's why I think people struggle with sobriety because they don't want to feel those uncomfortable feelings. And so it's easier to run from them than to sit in them and work through them. Yeah. It, and we see people talk about drinking culture when it comes to younger people, um, like the under 30 people. But what about the older crowd? Because like I've said, I've seen mature women um, who have drinks at children's birthday parties, kind of like what you mentioned earlier. Uh, the, oh, you know, the, bot the bottomless mimosas at brunch is a big thing now. Or people who participate in book clubs just so they can have somewhere to go and drink wine. I mean... <laughs> So well, what do you think drives the older crowd? Because they, a lot of them have families and responsibilities, yet they still find themselves a part of this culture. Well, I think the same thing that drove them when they were in their 20s. It's that hole in the soul and the, the need to be liked, the need to be have approval for everyone to think you're fun and part of the gang. I mean, a lot of women are just afraid and men to stand up and be ostracized and say, what are we doing? You know, some of the, here's what happens as people get older too. And, and especially like in the affluent retired crowd, they die decades sooner with bad livers. I mean, I'm sure you've seen it. You go down to Florida and the lifestyle is, drink the mimosas like you're talking about, go play golf, go to dinner, drink some more, have drinks on somebody's patio and wake up and do it all over. And what's happening is they're falling and they're breaking their hips and they're ending up in nursing homes or their livers are going bad or they're getting heart attacks. So it catches up with you one way or the other. Physically, as you get older, the body cannot take it. And in women, excuse me, I've got a hair in my eye. In women, we have a we do not have a chemical that men do. It's called ADH. And it's it's made in the liver. So we do not process alcohol as efficiently as males can. So that is the other thing. So females are going to get drunker faster. Um, the other high risk category are people who have had bariatric surgery. 89% of them go on to become alcoholic because now they're switching from food to alcohol. So we're all, you know, we self-medicate in many different ways. People that are addicted to porn, people that are addicted to gambling, food, sex. I mean, it doesn't matter. Addiction is addiction and it can grab anybody. There are no demographics and there's still this shame like, you're a weak person or, and that's just bull. It's just not true. We're usually very strong people because we will beat ourselves up over and over and over again. And we keep going back. Like who does that? You know, you have these rough drinking nights and you think a normal person who's not alcoholic is going to be okay. I've, I'm done. I'm not doing that again. And they don't, you know, they learn how to drink a few drinks and go home.
But an alcoholic will have disaster after disaster, consequence after consequence, and they keep blaming everybody else. But look in the mirror, you know, and sometimes it really does change change the whole landscape when a person can look at their part instead of feeling like the victim. You know, like I, there was this one woman, she was in this bad marriage and she just felt like the victim for 15 years and she was a physician. So it's not like she didn't have the means to like make another choice. And so I said to her, why did you stay? And it was like, the light bulb went off for her when she realized, wow, I really wasn't the victim. I stayed because I was getting something out of it because the man I was married to was a pretty good stepdad to the kids so I could drink. See what I mean? So it's like this selfishness of the alcoholic. They disguise it and we can twist it and make it into something else. But really it's because we're, we're looking at selfish reasons that enable us to keep drinking or we're comfortable in our dysfunction. So why change it? All right. And you mentioned disguise. The word you used was disguise. And, you know, when, when I think of someone who suffers from alcoholism, I think of a person, you know, sitting in a recliner, empty beer cans all over the floor, wearing an old T-shirt and shorts, you know, the stereotypical drunk. But people who suffer from alcoholism rarely probably look like that on the surface. I mean, they look like us in our everyday attire, right? That's exactly right. Um, 80% of the alcoholics are people who are employed. They have families. They have jobs. So that's 80%. I mean, the ones like you just mentioned, that is not the... Um, not the average alcoholic, you know, those are the ones who have gotten really, really sick and have been drinking long and hard. But most, I mean, are dressed up as moms, as your co-workers, as your family members. I mean, these are people that are functioning, but they don't realize how low level they're functioning until you quit. And it's really, you know, alcoholism is really a thinking disease. It's not so much the drinking is a symptom. It's the thinking of, you know, nursing those resentments, going over those conversations, you know, that we have in our head, these imaginary ones of what we're going to say and, and just massaging this anger, you know, whatever it is. And recovery helps people get through and work through that and, you know, look at their part, own it. Sometimes, you know, if, if people have trauma like rapes or whatever that fuel addiction, you don't necessarily have a part in that, but those feelings, you know, women want to run from because it's just so painful to relive or, or whatever, but, you know, the alcohol or the drugs are just going to take you down a whole nother horrible path. So it is, you know, as painful as it is sometimes to work through domestic violence issues or whatever the case may be, it's a lot easier in the long run than just self-medicating and falling into that alcoholism where you're just functioning, getting through life, but you're not happy. And there's like this dark gray cloak around you. I don't know how else to describe it, but like it just feels heavy. There's no joy. 
There's no joy. And everybody who gets sober says, God, I'm starting to notice the birds. I hear the birds singing. The sky's so blue. The grass is so green. You know, you start to notice the little things that you don't notice when you're always just like drinking or recovering, feeling bad, you know, with this hangover. And then you start to feel better for a few hours and then you're back at it. I mean, that's really no way to live. But sadly, millions of people are living just like that. I mean, so I mean, so many people who drink excessively don't want to hear someone telling them, hey, you drink too much. All right. right. So for for people who are trying to help someone what can friends and family do? How do you get someone to realize that they may have a problem without risking the friendship or the relationship? Part of it, Quincy, is society, like we were saying earlier, drinks so heavily that we've normalized alcoholism. So if you have family members that you think might have a problem, when you have these barbecues and all that, do you have to have a sea of alcohol? So that is one thing. If if we could show people what maybe normal drinking looks like. So maybe instead of buying, I don't know, let's just say you're going to have five people over and you have two cases of beer and all these half gallons of, well, you can drink alcoholically. No one's going to know because there's so much alcohol there, right? So when they realize if you just have a normal amount for everybody to maybe have a few drinks, and they will internalize like, oh, this isn't going to be enough. Or they're going to run to their car and get their own stash. You know, those start to plant little seeds that their drinking's not normal to themselves, if this makes sense. So, but when we have so much alcohol around at these functions where you can drink alcoholically and nobody knows, I mean, that's not helpful. So that is one way that you can be helpful to your family. Don't have so much. If you're going to have dinner, open a bottle of wine. Everybody gets a glass. And if you're an alcoholic, you're going to be like, oh, this, you're going to want more. Where normal people will be fine with that and can just have conversation and enjoy the food. So it's things like that. Now, if someone is really getting into deep trouble, the main thing that families do is they enable. They enable either financially, they make excuses, they call the job and say, oh, so-and-so, you know, they make up lies for them. Stop it. Those are some of the things that family members can do. You want the alcoholic to feel their consequences. If they lose eight jobs over it, so be it. You know, if they wreck the car, you don't buy them a new one. You don't help them, lend them money to go get it fixed and all this craziness. No, they can just take the bus or whatever until they earn enough money to get their car back. Things like that will help the alcoholic hit a lower bottom faster. But when you enable, when people, you know, it is counterintuitive, especially for parents. We want to help our kids. And, you know, I talk about in my book, my mother enabled my sister for 40 years because financially she was always helping her out. And my sister was buying drugs with all this money. So my mother, I think because of her own guilt of being an alcoholic mother, even though she was sober and I would tell her mom, stop it. And she knew she shouldn't do it. But I think her guilt was just 
you know, so it is such a family disease. It's complicated, but um, it's very complicated. And every situation is very different. And you work with, I work with each family a little differently because of the circumstances. But those are just some things across the board, regardless of, of what not to do, because it, it only helps them prolong their addiction. And I also tell parents of adult kids, if you have a 19, 20, 24 year old still sitting in your basement, playing video games, look, it's usually because they're addicted. Okay. That is not normal. Most adult children don't want to still be in mom and dad's basement playing video games. And I say, look, are they drinking, drugging, smoking pot? What is going on? When you have an adult child that fails to launch, there's usually something going on in the background. Wow. This has been a great discussion. Your book shares stories of people who explain why they stopped, they started drinking and how they stopped. Do they speak about how their lives have changed after they stopped drinking? Absolutely. Because it is a book of hope so that people can see how different life is after the drink. You know, it's like I say, take that leap of faith that you're going to land on a soft cloud. And I have not found one alcoholic in my circle in the book that hasn't found their gift after they quit drinking. Like many have done like what you're doing. They've started podcasts. They start painting. They go back to school. They start writing. They start helping children. They, you know, they find this gift. I mean, I really do believe that God has put us all here and we all have a gift, you know, and yours is, is your podcast. You're reaching out a lot of people and talking about topics that people don't want to talk about. So these are things that people do in recovery. But, you know, when you're sitting at a bar, like I was, like I said, I love the bars. I would go and spend hours in a bar on a weekend. I can remember walking out into the sunlight and it's like, oh, this is so blinding. But, you know, I sobered up when I was 29 and there was a lot of grief about the decade of my 20s that I literally wasted sitting on a bar stool. I mean, when other people were, I was going to college, but I never finished until I got sober. I finished two degrees in sobriety. I was valedictorian of my nursing class. And then I went back later and I got a bachelor in English. I had been in college 10 years and just couldn't get my act together because of the drinking. I was always about the next party. You know, oh, drop those classes. Um, I'm not going to have time to drink them. I want to drink. So I'll just take two classes instead of four, you know, this kind of stuff. And so once I got sober, you start finishing and you realize like it wasn't because I wasn't intellectually capable of doing it. It was because I was lazy and it required more work than I was willing to expend because it was interfering with my drinking and my partying. And when you're in your twenties, you can get away with a lot of nonsense, but you know what? Thirties bear down on you pretty quick. And before you blink, now you're 40. And if you're still drinking and looking for the party, your life is literally half over, you know, and it's really sad. I love to remind people, how do you know you're not the next Steve Jobs? You know, we don't know how much brilliance is being wasted in our culture because people aren't applying themselves because of addictions. 
And we've got, you know, the open border. We've got fentanyl killing. It is the number one killer in, in adults 18 to 49. Now, I don't care what side you're on. This is wrong. We need to close that down. Children are losing their parents. And there's a whole generation of kids that are traumatized from either both parents overdosing, parents in jail because of drugs. I mean, this is literally killing our society. And so much of the drug use starts with alcohol. Almost all addictions start with alcohol because it's very easy to get when you're a kid. You know, you're around all these adults. Like I say in my book, you can't go to a three-year-old's birthday party without the parents making it all about them. And it didn't used to be like that. Like parents have gotten incredibly selfish. It's all about their party instead of, you know, can't you have a three, four, five-year-old, let them have their birthday party with cupcakes and balloons and not have to look at beer bottles and wine bottles and do your drinking, you know, get a babysitter and go out with your friends and do what you want to do. But, you know, we've lost all of this sensibility. There is no sensibility anymore. It's all about these selfish parents. And I hope I am making someone mad because it is selfish, you know, and as a child of an alcoholic, nobody ever asked us, how do you, I have two older siblings and a younger brother. Nobody asked, how are the kids? What's going on? We were floundering you know, in this craziness. And my mom had family around, but I don't think they knew how crazy it was getting. And, but it would have been nice if there would have been someone there to like maybe role model something better for us so that we could learn how, you know, teach your kids coping skills. You know, my sons, they have that predisposition. We've got so much alcoholism in my family. All of my siblings, okay, are addicts or alcoholics in recovery or working on recovery. Um, so it has really ravaged our family. And I decided, you know, I broke that chain that I was able to show my kids different and whether they have that disposition and they're going to become alcoholic, I don't know. But I will tell you this, Quincy, I taught them coping skills. You know, when they were, they both went on to play division college, division one college football. They graduated on time. You know, they're both employed. I have two grandchildren with my one son and my other son just got married. So, so far they're functioning adults and they're doing well. And, and should this alcohol bug bite them at some point, you know, they know what recovery looks like. They know that life can be great without alcohol. You don't need it to have a wonderful life. And they also know there is a solution because I think a lot of people start to feel so helpless that um, they just think it'll never change. And I, anybody out there who is struggling, you know, I went to AA. It's cheap. It's free. You don't need to go spend $100,000 at some fancy rehab. Um, you might need medical detox, though. So that can be very serious. People that are addicted to alcohol, benzos, those two, you cannot just like, well, it depends. I mean, I didn't go to rehab, but I think I quit before I was physically addicted. I was psychologically addicted, but physically it, it you know, I wasn't shaking. And But some people, DTs can be fatal. So if you are someone who's drinking a fifth a day, you probably need some medical detox before you 
you know, and you should go to rehab. So it, it really, like I said, everybody's so different. Everybody physiologically is so different. Some people have drank long and hard for decades and never had a DT where other people, you know, I know women who have had DTs. My mother was one who had DTs and had to go to the psych ward and they detox, you know, she was a mess. So it really depends. Everybody's different, but it can be done. You don't have to live like that. Okay. Yeah. All right. So what would you like for people to get out of reading your book? If someone picks up your book and they read it cover to cover, what do you hope they get from it? I hope they get number one, recovery is possible. It's not awful. Your life will be amazing after. Number two, my big message in raising the bottom is you do not have to hit a low bottom. Our culture, and we have this picture in our mind that unless an alcoholic, like you were saying, is sitting in a sea of beer cans and all that, that they can't have a drinking problem. And I want people to understand that you can have a drinking problem while you're still working, raising kids. But if you, you will know that little voice inside of you, listen to it. I knew two years before I quit that my drinking was escalating. And if you find your drinking escalating, nip it in the bud, do something now. You don't have to wait until it gets so bad. There is, you know, you can have that high bottom. And that's what I had. I had a very high bottom. I did not go to jail. I didn't have a DUI. I had nothing really happened. My consequences were all internal. I was unhappy. I felt depressed, all of this stuff, you know, and then once I got quit drinking a depressant every day, mostly. I wasn't a daily drinker when I quit, but I was probably drinking five days a week for sure. So alcohol is a depressant. And I tell people, if you're depressed, the first thing you should do, am I a drinker? Stop drinking. And if you can't stop drinking, you already know what your problem is. See, but people would love, would rather say, oh no, it's not that. I'm depressed. And they go run to the doctor and start the antidepressants because they don't want to make the hard choice of quitting drinking. And mm. sadly, some people never, you know, they just would rather take lots of pills and keep drinking and stay miserable. Wow. Well, Lisa, I truly appreciate you taking the time to join the show. Where can people find you online and on social media and where can they get the book? They can get the book. Probably the easiest is Amazon, but it's pretty much available online wherever books are sold. Some bookstores, um, any bookstore can order it. So it's readily available. But I would say Amazon is probably the, we all go there the fastest. I'm on Twitter at El Boucher Author, same uh, handle on Instagram, El Boucher Author. And I believe I'm, my website is being revamped as we speak because I have a new book coming out in November. Um, so that we're tying it together, but uh, you can go to El Boucher author as well and find me on my website. Okay. And by the way, how many books do you have now? Well, you know, I, this raising the bottom was my fifth, but I didn't do a lot with my earlier books. This one, I kind of hit my stride. And then my new book that's coming out in November, I'm very excited about this one. It is a book for everybody. It's called pray. Trust, Ride, Lessons on Surrender from a Cowgirl and a King. And I like to go on cattle drives. So ride the horses. I'm a cowgirl at heart. And um, so I tie in life on the trail with the prayer of Jehoshaphat found in two Chronicles. 
So it's just a sweet, fun book about life lessons. And it's the kind of book that I want you to put it in your car, put it in your saddlebag. And when you're in a funky mood, you can open it up at any page. It's that kind of book. I think like the longest chapters, probably five or six pages. Some pages just have a paragraph that maybe another page has a few lines. So it's it's different, but we'll see how it goes. But I'm looking forward to it. All right. Sounds good. All right. She is a registered nurse. She is an author. The name of her book, Raising the Bottom, Making Mindful Choices in a Drinking Culture. Miss Lisa Boucher, I truly appreciate you taking the time to join Talk to Q Radio show, and I hope that we can do it again in the future. I hope so. Maybe with my new book, we'll talk about surrender. There you go. And that's going to do it, people. Thank you for joining the show. Please be sure to, again, like I said, check the show notes for links to Lisa's uh, social media information, as well as where you can get the book. Be sure to support this show if you can. You can find me by searching hashtag T2Q uh, or Talk to Q and find me on YouTube. I'm on Spotify, Apple, wherever podcasts are found. And we will see you on the next Talk to Q radio show. Enjoy the rest of your week. Peace out.